Words matter. They can change the course of your day. Just listen. You are brave. You are stronger than you think. You have value, worth, and dignity. Don't you feel better already? Welcome to Speak Healing Words, the podcast. Join author and board-certified life coach Janelle Reardon as she opens a very important conversation about the power of our words. Hello and welcome to Speak Healing Words. And guess what? Today is our final episode of the Speak Healing Words podcast because, drumroll please, I am launching the transition I've been talking about for quite some time. I figured it's October, it's my birthday month, we're into a new season. So why not? Why not now? So after today, we'll transition right here. You won't have to move anywhere, go anywhere new, or subscribe to any other new podcast. Just stay right here. And we are transitioning from Speak Healing Words, the podcast, into today's Heartlift with Janelle. Took me a while to settle down into that space of where I wanted to take this podcast next. And due to COVID, presidential election, and a host of other really tough, tough situation circumstances going on in our world, I thought, boy, if ever we needed good news, If ever we needed a heart lift, it is now. So to close out this wonderful, wonderful time that we've had here on Speak Healing Words. Of course, Speak Healing Words is a fundamental practice in our Stronger Everyday community. But on the podcast, we now want to really bring heart-lifting conversations, messages, Uh, interviews so that we can experience some good news, some information that will help us live a better life, a more meaningful life. So stay tuned. It's on its way. And I want to thank you. I want to thank you ahead of time, ahead of today's final episode on our Speak Ailing Words podcast. Thank you for being here for finding your way here and for staying with me and learning and growing. I've had so many beautiful comments from you about how the podcast has been helpful. And that is, that's my number one goal, to add value to your life. When I started Speak Healing Words, it really was intended to be an overflow for my therapy clients in between sessions. Because as I've explained so many times, you know, you just can't get to everything in one session. And I work in an intensive modality. So our sessions are not typically 50 minutes. But even within the confines of an hour to two, sometimes three, you still can't get to the deepest part of the issues. And so I wanted my clients in between their sessions to have more information more depth that they could take in bites that were manageable for them individually. When they are privately finding a quiet space, when they're ready 
to move forward and go deeper into this subject or with that subject or another subject. So, but then it evolved into just a wonderful space in which to talk about mental health, our emotional health and wellness, and to really solidify the practice of our three full cord of emotional health and wellness, which I believe are the foundation or is the foundation for spiritual health, physical health, emotion, all the health. <laughs> and that is a healthy sense of self, healthy behavior patterns, and healthy communication skills. This is a trifecta. It is a power tool that when we possess this threefold cord in our toolbox and we practice it on a daily basis, individually and corporately within our families, workplaces, schools, churches, staffs, athletic teams, the whole entire system becomes whole. Because, you know, we're individuals, but we... We're synergistic. We live in community. We are built for community. And none of us heal and none of us grow without community. So today, I wanted to really conclude this time with a topic that has been the number one requested topic throughout our seasons, and that is worry. Worry, worry, worrier. And I started looking into this subject in the year, predominantly in the year 2000, I distinctly remember where I was. I was in a beautiful hotel room in Chicago at a business event with my husband. He was away at a training and I had my Bible, my concordance. I had taken him with me, no computers then, and just opened it and started studying about trust. And the more I studied about trust, the more the word worry kept showing up. So I had to take pause because when that unfolds, when words unfold in words, I pay attention. And at that time, this was pre-Janelle therapist. I was in a transition phase in my life. I had owned and operated a really successful, fabulous dance studio. I was homeschooling three children. Life became a lot and I ended up breaking my back, experiencing a stress fracture in my lower back called spondylolisthesis, pars defect. And it was forcing me into a new direction in my life. And it was a death of sorts, um, really, on so many levels. It was a death of Janelle the dancer, Janelle the business owner, and yet it was freedom a freedom into exploring other areas of giftings in my life because I had danced most of my life. So I had to come to a serious <laughs> place in my life and examine myself and go, whew, what now? What next? And so that was requiring me to really press in to trusting that God, my Father, was leading me, and he was leading me well. And so for about 10 years, I continued homeschooling. I pioneered a co-op program, and I started to 
re-engage with my writing and speaking gifts. One teacher at that time described it this way to me, and he said, you know, it's like a flower or a bush or a plant, and, you know, it's got these big, beautiful flowers on the top, and until those die and you cut them off, the flowers underneath don't get any sunlight, and it's harder for them to bloom. And so he said, sometimes we have gifts under gifts under gifts, and when one seems to die or, or the door seems to close or there's a shift, then watch. Because perhaps those gifts under the gifts under the gifts will begin to emerge and start to unfold and blossom. And that's what happened with my writing and my speaking. And for the next decade, I spoke anywhere and everywhere I could and began writing. I was published in a couple magazines, and I began learning how to write book proposals and attending writing conferences and speaking events. I got went and had a speaking agency, and so it was just a whole new level of what the future was holding for me. And then after my first book was published, Rock Solid Families, I had told you that... So many women would stand in line and wait and were so brokenhearted that I just knew I I knew I had a spirit of counsel, but I needed more training. So in 2008, when my twins went away to college and flew the nest, all three of my children uh, flew the nest, and I went back to the university to get my master's in counseling. And the rest has led me here. And so now, looking back, I, I have, I really had only scratched the surface in my study of worry. Now, with the training that I've been able to put under my belt, I, I have a, a deeper understanding. And, and I love that about life. I love that we can keep learning and keep growing and keep understanding and adding to our our intelligence and adding to our emotional intelligence more than anything. So I wanted to read to you, uh, before we even dabble into what worry really is and its roots, from Permission to Feel by uh, Dr. Mark Brackett. And he writes in this book, Permission to Feel, it's instructive to witness how our understanding of emotion progresses as our brain develops, starting right after birth. Researchers have found that infants are unable to perceive distinct emotions by facial expressions, but they can differentiate between pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral expression. Two-year-olds who know only the most basic emotion words, sad and happy, can't tell the difference between negative facial expressions. They perceive all unpleasant faces as sad. Three and four-year-olds begin to grasp the terms anger and fear and learn to tell one negative expression from another. So you're seeing this, the evolution of the emotional intelligence developing as the child develops. There's ample research showing that children who can accurately label their feelings enjoy more positive social interactions than kids who cannot who experience more learning and behavioral problems. So we say here all the time that trauma, little t, middle t, big t, is really just when emotions are too, too big for our body. 
So keep that in the forefront of your mind as we continue to see how our emotional intelligence develops and that when we can accurately label our feelings, we will enjoy more positive social interactions in our lives. He continues, other research has shown that affective labeling is linked to lower activation of the amygdala, the brain region that's activated when we feel negative emotions, and higher activation in the right ventrolateral prefrontal cortex, which supports emotion regulation. So lean in here. This is, this is a real pivotal moment, especially before we examine our mindsets of worry. And just as our brains make use of neural pathways to connect one region to another, our emotions travel on pathways too. (laughs) So good. If we're disposed to anger, then certain kinds of stimuli will routinely trigger it. And anger becomes our immediate go-to response. Yeah, I'm going to have to read this again. Just as our brains make use of neural pathways to connect one region to another, our emotions travel on pathways too. If we're disposed to anger, then certain kinds of stimuli will routinely trigger it, and anger becomes our immediate go-to response. And we've talked about that in the anatomy of yelling, the anatomy of repression. Why am I so angry? And please make sure today to download from JanelleRairden.com your self-guided interactive uh, guide to answering the question, why am I so angry? It's in our Why Am I series. And you just go to JanelleRairden.com, a little pink, bar will come on down and you put your email in there and download the PDF. So Dr. Mark continues and says, but if we are able to define multiple shades of that low pleasantness, high energy emotion, such as annoyed, disgusted, irritated, frustrated, and so on, then we can modulate our responses, and in doing so, stop ourselves before we hit full-blown rage at every provocation. Every possible term becomes a moment to pause for self-regulation. Asking this question, am I feeling it this strongly or perhaps something not quite so extreme? Oh yeah, this requires... What we know in this community as self-awareness. When we begin our healing journey, we put on new glasses and we get a new frame to look through our lives. And that frame is called awareness. We're going to begin noticing our behaviors, noticing our nonverbals and verbals, noticing our negative thought loops, our positive thought loops. We just start noticing. And we recognize these shadows that have existed in our lives, these blind spots, 
and it informs us and helps inform how we need to change. He continues, the term granularity provides a useful way of thinking about how to label our emotions. Granularity. All it means is that we define what we feel as precisely and narrowly, narrowly as words allow, down to the grains. Rather than settle for the generalized terms we tend to lean on. Psychologist Lisa Feldman Barrett wrote in the New York Times that what she calls emotional granularity is the adaptive value of putting feelings into words with a high degree of complexity. So putting into feelings, it's an adaptive way, putting feelings into words that have a high degree of complexity. And worry is one of those words to me. Complexity that mirrors our inner lives. In her experiments, participants who were deemed granular were better able to differentiate their emotional experiences. Subjects who were low in granularity, called clumpers, were less skilled at differentiating emotions such as anger, worry, or frustration. When the two groups were compared, those who adapted well and those who were clumpers, when they were compared, she reported, granular individuals were less likely to freak out or abuse alcohol when under stress and more likely to find positive meaning in negative experiences. That is my, my one goal for today is for us to become emotionally granular, not be a clumper, so that we can find positive meaning in negative experiences. And that will come by being equipped to put into words what we're really feeling. And I have a feelings chart in case you are a clumper. <laughs> no judgment here. Over on Stronger Every Day, a heartlifting community on our Facebook private online group. She says they were also better at emotion regulation, moderating their responses in order to achieve desired outcomes. The clumpers, on the other hand, scored worse on those counts, tending to be physically and psychologically ill at a higher rate than the granular crowd. I'm going to read one more important fact. There's even a term for people who have the slimmest vocabulary to describe emotions. Who knew? Alexithymia. This term also refers to the difficulty in recognizing and expressing emotions. And there are, there are those people. If you know anything about the Enneagram, if you've been with me before, you've heard me talk about how valuable this tool, this emotional healing tool is in our, on our journey of transformation. The Enneagram is composed of nine different types of personality, personality being how we show up for life. And I would say one of the more predominant Enneagram numbers, the number five, would be probably more alexithymic or alexithymic. Thymia, have alexithymia more than others. I'm not sure if it's thymia or thymia. 
One study examining the brains of alexithymic people found that they had less gray matter than non-alexithymic people in areas, areas of their anterior cingulate cortex that are associated with language processing. I just think that's fascinating. I thought it was amazing, and I wanted to share the work of Dr. Mark Brackett from Permission to Feel. So when we talk about worry, and once again, over on Stronger Every Day, our heartlifting online community on Facebook, it's private, so you have to request to be um, become a member, and that's fine. You just answer a few questions, and I'll let you on in. And um, I have there the feelings chart in case you are a little, more, a little bit more alexithymic and need some help with expressing what you're really feeling because I, I know I needed that at one time. Sometimes I still need it and many of my clients need it. And when we began to talk about this worry, I dug into my archives and pulled out a couple of PowerPoints that I had taught about 20 years ago, two decades ago. And I came back to the best definition I've ever found of worry. And it was by a Holocaust survivor, the beautiful Corrie, C-O-R-R-I-E, 10, T-E-N, boom, capital B-O-O-M. And she uh, was wrote The Hiding Place, which is just a best, international bestseller. And her story is just, was pivotal in my life and one that I shared with my children and just infused in us trust and faith. And Corey Ten Boom defined worry as a cycle of inefficient thoughts that whirl around a center of fear. A cycle of inefficient thoughts that that whirl and swirl and twirl around a center of fear. I added the dance movement. <laughs> and then I thought, hmm, I love that, Corey. And I added, well, then if that's what worry is, then to me, faith would be a cycle of efficient thoughts that swirl and whirl and twirl around a center of faith. Worry being centered in fear, trust being centered in faith. So we want more, more mindfulness and less worry. And we'll talk about mindfulness before we end. In a great um, article that I read by Dr. Lawrence J. Cohen, The Playful Parenting Approach to Childhood Anxieties and Fears. Actually, I think it's a book. He says the opposites of worry are relief, serenity, calm, calmness, peacefulness, comfort, peace of mind, peace, tranquility, and well-being. And he describes anxiety across childhood. And I'll repeat, uh, he goes into a little bit more depth than what I read from Dr. Brackett. And he writes that infants and toddlers deal with the anxieties of separation, being alone, loud noises, strangers, anything sudden or intense and unfamiliar. And I circle that and put, enter secure attachment. If you don't know what that is, go back into the archives of this podcast and listen to any and all 
things about secure attachment and attachment theory. Is when a child is given security, when they are seen, known, loved, and they know that they are cared for, it's a game changer in life. A true, it's really a true game changer. And then he continues that ages two to four, there might be fears about animals, clowns. Oh, my twin daughter certainly had a fear of clowns and dogs. The bath, imaginary monsters under the bed, toilet training, bodily functions. You know, all of a sudden they're not in a diaper and what is this coming out of my butt? Harsh or inconsistent discipline. They might become anxious about unstable emotional development, even though they don't understand anything really more beyond fear or sadness or happy. And then four to six, they develop anxiety about the bigger world outside their immediate environment. Storms, war, let's add COVID, pandemics, doctor, school, dentist, social anxiety. They can't discern fiction from nonfiction. I learned that early on when I was raising my children, and I, I just think it's so important. He says in ages 6 to 11, their new worries are about performance in school. Bullies. Rejection. Peer pressure. And here in ages 6 to 11, the conscience is developing more fully also in ages 6 to 11, more towards 11, 12, children become more aware of the performance anxiety and they become less creative. So there's this watershed. I used to tell my, my children this, but particularly my older daughter who was writing a lot of stories, a lot of fiction stories at that time, and they were just pouring out of her. And I'm like, put them in a file, put them away, keep them in a safe place because this is the time of life where you are just going to be so, so creative. You know, the world, outside world, hasn't come in and been too encumbering yet or burdensome. And then into adolescence, which can be anywhere from 10, some depending on the school of thought, 10 to 19, 10 to 24. Um, real life issues become critical, of course. And then it's a, it's a time of ex, existential anxiety. Who am I? What, what was I created for? What's this all about? What's the world about? And I, I love this quote that a father quoted by Mr. Rogers. When we'd go for a walk in the neighborhood, my son was always scared of the barking dog down the street. My first response was to say, oh, don't let it worry you. He can't get out. But that didn't help. So now this father learned, probably by listening to the, the brilliant Mr. Rogers, now he said, I know that sometimes you are scared of that dog. I'll just hold your hand. So what's the difference here? And I, I noted three beautiful things. This father learned to be a source of calmness, a source of stability. And now remember, going back to the Enneagram, the nine different ways that we can look at the world, our children are each going to have a way that they, a frame that they look at the world through. Some might be more adventurous, some might be more timid, some might be more angry or easy to flip their lid. Some may be chill as a cucumber as a child, but then in adolescence they start to act out. But if the parent 
or the caregiver or the teacher or the coach, whoever can be a source of strength, a source of stability. I like to say a, a source of consistency. Some A parent who doesn't undulate like the waves or doesn't take their children on a roller coaster ride of I'm this way and then I'm that way and the, the kid just doesn't know which way's up. So when we become this source of calmness, like this dad, like I know you're afraid of that dog. I've got you. I'm going to hold your hand. He's just a barking dog. I've got you. The dad is recognizing and assuring the child that their emotion is real. He's not just poo-pooing it away. Go to your room and get it together and then come back out. Well, what kid knows how to get it together? I know so many adults, myself included, who don't know how to get it together. And so, you know, we, we have to guide them. The second is to be a source of confidence. You know, give that child, come down to that child's level. And we're just going to continue to use this example of the barking dog. Get down on the child's level, look them in the eye and say, I got you. Look at me. I know you're scared. I've got you. I'm here. I'm going to hold your hand. We're going to do this together. It's just fear. Your stomach, right? Your stomach's got butterflies. You feel a little sick to your stomach. Your palms are sweaty. That's the emotion of fear. You are giving that child emotional intelligence, helping that child find the words that are not there yet, and helping that child recognize the big, big, big emotions in their body and then helping them get words. Third, coping skills. Coping skills. In our community here, I talk a lot about Dr. Dan Siegel's flipping your lid hand motions, hand movement. And Dr. Siegel just folds his hand. He puts his thumb inside his fist and he says, this is your whole brain, right? We want to live life through our whole brain. But when we maybe have experienced some kind of trauma or something where the emotions were so scary or so big or so Um, way bigger than we could hold inside of our bodies. Even as adults, sometimes we get so scared that we can't hold those emotions in our body. And that's when we flip our lid and we go into the limbic system where that amygdala we were just talking about fires up because there has been a trigger of some sort that has gone into the fight, flight, freeze, fawn, part of our brain, which is the amygdala. We've hopped out of our prefrontal cortex where we're rational and reasonable and we've gone into our amygdala and we're flipping our lid. So that's what we do when we go into excessive worry. We flip our lid. What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? Oh my goodness, oh my goodness, my goodness. What if that dog gets loose? What if that dog comes and runs and attacks me and bites my head off and I have to go to the hospital and I have to get 54 stitches and then I have to be... You know that, right? If you're, if you're alive, you've experienced the what-ifs in your life. Some of us to more excess than others. 
Some of us are more natural worriers. Once again, to the Enneagram, that would be the Enneagram 6. They are worst-case scenario individuals who are highly valuable people in our systems because they look and see what could go wrong. They are so vital, but when that becomes unhealthy, they become consumed and the feedback loop in their brain just can't get off of what if, what if, what if, what if, I'm not safe, I'm not safe, I'm not safe. And then if you add insecure attachment to them, it gets even worse. So calmness, confidence, and coping skills are critical for learning how to manage worry, which we know now is a cycle of inefficient thoughts whirling around a center of fear. So what do we do? Let me flip my page of notes here. What do we do? We practice the powerful emotional health tool, the modality of mindfulness. Mindfulness. What is mindfulness? Well, it is a newer term. Uh, Dr. John Kabat-Zinn, I don't think he's a doctor actually, it's a John Kabat-Zinn uh, who wrote Full Catastrophe Living, developed this approach of living in the present. And quite honestly, the book I love so much, the Bible, the ancient texts filled with wisdom, Jesus taught about being present. He said to us in the Gospels, don't worry. Don't worry about today. I'm sorry. Don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough problems of its own. Stay in today. Well, that's really hard to do. It's so hard to do. But there are grounding, beautiful techniques that we've talked through many of them on our podcast, and we will continue to talk about them here and in our all of our resources on grounding techniques that help us to be in the present with prayer being right at the top of that list. So mindfulness is just bringing a gentle, accepting attitude to the present moment. And if you are a parent and you're listening today, no matter what age your children are, no matter what age we are, it is not too late to begin to develop this beautiful skill of mindfulness. And parents, it's best taught by example. We need to embody the practice of mindfulness ourselves. And when it comes to this worry and anxiety that tends to become overwhelming for us, we have to stop and say, what is my mind dwelling on right now? Is it in the present? Am I here in the present or am I in the future or am I in the past? So we need to bring awareness to the present moment. John Kabat-Zinn writes, the way of mindfulness is to accept ourselves right now as we are, symptoms or no symptoms, pain or no pain, fear or no fear. Instead of rejecting our experience as undesirable, we ask, what is this symptom saying? What is it telling me about my body and my mind right now? So he's really saying exactly, 
the exact same thing that we were uh, discussing earlier in that we have to grow our emotional intelligence, have a growth mindset, and we have to learn an emotional vocabulary and give words to what we're feeling. And if you need that feelings chart, hop over and get it. JanelleRairden.com. Just subscribe and you you will get that. We allow ourselves for a moment at least to go right into the full-blown feeling of the symptom. This takes a certain amount of courage, especially if the symptom involves pain, a chronic illness, or fear of death. But the challenge here is can you at least dip your toe in the water by trying it just a little, say for 10 seconds, just to move in a little closer for a clearer look? Can we metaphorically put out the welcome mat for what is here, simply because it is already here, and take a look, or even better, allow ourselves to feel our way into the full range of our experience in such moments? I love that. So in conclusion, I just want to read a few other samples of ways that you can reframe reframe the way that you say things to help nurture that calmness, that confidence, and that coping capacity. I'm going to read another story to you. It took me some time to reach the stage. Dinah couldn't handle anything new. To leave the house took 45 minutes of discussion, even if we were going someplace fun. I was not patient at all. My impatience made her more anxious. It was a vicious cycle. Because she did not take change well, We did not expose her to change very much, so she became even more reluctant. I was also a new mother with my own anxieties. The breakthrough in our relationship came when I learned about temperaments. And those temperaments are also a very huge part of that Enneagram that I was telling you about. And when you can take the test and see what number you are, you can get increasingly more attuned to you, to who you are, to how you're made. And I understood that my kid was reactive to new things. I finally understood that I did not have a defective child. I could see the world through her eyes. And that's what I wanted to share more than anything is that we start to see the world through our children's eyes. And when we're looking at ourselves, I like to say, I want to see the world. I want to see me through God's eyes. Of course, she won't try new foods on vacation. Everything else is too new already. So we purchased her favorite shape of pasta and asked the restaurant to cook it. And I learned that it will take us longer, but we will get it. We will get there like spending two weeks of playing in advance of getting a vaccination so that she won't have to be held down screaming. So what do we do? How do we reframe these things? Feelings are real. And all fears inside of a child child are valid because they are the feelings the child is experiencing. And we can make this relative to ourselves as well. Um, You know, feelings aren't rational. They're feelings. They're not rationals. (laughs) They're feelings. So the greatest tool to me today, because we can only get one in, is don't dismiss your worry and anxiety. Don't dismiss your fears. Don't dismiss your anger. Pay attention to these things. Put on a new framework in your mind and be attentive 
and pay attention. Pay attention to your fear. Pay attention to your anger. Pay attention to your worry. Don't shove it away and don't say things like this. Stop being such a baby. You're fine for goodness sake. Nobody else is afraid. Why are you afraid? Just do it. Don't make a big deal out of it. I told you I'm coming back. Just stop crying. You see, everything turned out fine. All your worrying was a waste of time. If you're just going to sit in my lap, we might as well go home. Those, we would say, belong in shame language. They're diminishing the feelings of the person or the child, whoever it is. You're basically saying, stop feeling. Well, that's not helpful. (laughs) Because remember, feelings aren't supposed to be rational. They're feelings. And because of a lack of education and a lack of development of our emotional intelligence, a lot of us didn't grow up understanding what we were actually feeling. I've shared my story a million times about how angry I was as a young mom. I had no idea why I was angry. It was subconscious. I was really angry at an alcoholic father and alcoholic home that I grew up in. And, you know, until I went and got some help and some therapy to understand where this rage was coming from, I just slammed cabinets and got angrier and angrier and angrier. So we have to grow. We have to put on a growth mindset and grow. This has gone long and I apologize, but it is our last episode. Let me close with this. The opposite of dismissal is acknowledgement. Contrast the dismissive comments, the shame comments, with these empathic acknowledgements of emotion. Wow, that was really scary for you. You look a little frightened. Would you like me to hold your hand? If I had that nightmare, I'd be scared too. I would. Everyone gets scared at times, even grown-ups. Yes, even me. You wish you could stay home with me today, don't you? Would you like to try it together for the first time? Even though everything worked out, I know you were really worried. You can sit in my lap as long as you'd like, and you join in when you're ready. I think those are so helpful, and I so wish I'd had those in my toolbox as a young mom. But I can implement them now as a mother of three 30-somethings. And more than that, implement them in my own life so that I can lead by example. So I hope today was helpful. I hope that you now become very aware of the cycle of inefficient thoughts that are whirling through your brain and they're centered around fear and can begin taking movement towards having a cycle of efficient efficient thoughts swirling and twirling and whirling around a center of faith. Thanks for being with me on the Speak Healing Words podcast journey, and I look forward to episode one of today's Heartlift with Janelle and friends. Until then, remember... Always remember, you, my friend, have value, worth, and dignity. Thanks for listening today. 
It was great having you here. For even more great content and conversation, please join the Speak Healing Words community at JanelleReardon.com.